In the spirit and celebration of the Beijing Summer Olympics, ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, is happy to present this month's special series, Focus on Sports Medicine. We are currently barraged by the negative media over athletic abuse of steroids. What, if any, are the appropriate current indications? Welcome to a special segment focused on sports medicine on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Paul Howard, who is the current director of Arthritis Health Limited. He is a long-term active volunteer with the Arthritis Foundation. He is currently the governor of the ACP, Arizona's chapter, and has repeatedly been voted top doc in rheumatology by his medical peers. Dr. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, let's start with really kind of defining the different types of steroids. We, all we hear about is anabolic steroids. We never hear about the other kinds. Yeah, and the anabolic steroids or the sex steroids uh, are the group that most people hear about. But the steroids that are clinically used in practice are typically your glucocorticoids, which are the steroid cortisone-like agents that are available commercially. Then you also have the mineralocorticoids, which have more mineral effects. But the ones that we use typically in practice are your glucocorticoids. So to you, probably glucocorticoids are like vitamins. I mean, you probably prescribe them all day long, appropriately. I jokingly say I don't like steroids. I don't like corticosteroids. I wouldn't practice rheumatology without them. So steroids have been around for, what, 40, 50 years or even maybe longer? Actually longer, since the 1948. And were they just developed as an accident, like everything else that we have that helps us? They were synthesized um, after the discovery that they are the cause of Cushing's disease. When overproduction resulted in, in Cushing's disease, then it was subsequently identified and produced. And then once it was chemically produced, it was then made in a variety of different forms. And those forms really haven't changed very much in the last 50 or 60 years. And that is prednisone, prednisolone, decadron, a variety of different kinds. And basically, they are all the same thing. They are essentially different in their potency and their duration of action. I mean, in my practice, which is just general internal medicine, I just use prednisone. I don't think I've ever prescribed prednisolone. Decadron, when I was a, a resident, is there a reason for primary care to use anything besides prednisone? Uh, occasionally, uh, if someone doesn't seem to be responding the way you think they should to prednisone, mm -hmm. prednisone is an inactive product. It has to be converted by the liver into its active form. And it has to be converted into prednisolone. So you can prescribe prednisolone, the active product, in someone that you worry is not making that conversion hepatically. Is there a test for that? There's not a test for it, but it's really more of a clinical judgment. And sometimes we will change someone to prednisolone, which is methylprednisolone or medrol, and shift them to that in place of prednisone. But that usually most people are fully capable of converting prednisone into its active product. So how common is it that you run across that issue where you think, hmm, maybe I should switch this patient? I would say it, it occurs when I see someone who's on a dose of steroids and I see no adverse effects, meaning I see no weight gain, no cushing appearance, nothing, and I'm not getting the beneficial clinical effect, that's when I'll change it. And I'd say it, it occurs rarely, probably one in or 30 or 40 patients. You mentioned the Cushingoid side effects. What are the other major side effects besides, let's say, osteoporosis and the Cushingoid appearance? What else do you worry about? Well, I think the thing to remember about steroids is that when you take them high enough, long enough, you will get adverse effects. It's not a question of a side effect. It's just a guaranteed effect. Mm -hmm. and, the, and osteoporosis falls into that category. That any dose is not safe and the higher the dose is worse. It was often said that cataracts, if you use less than 10 milligrams a day, it was a side effect that didn't occur, but that's not correct. It can occur even at 
what we call physiologic doses, five to seven and a half milligrams of prednisone a day. The side effects that I think are the probably the most worrisome, but you don't see it as much, is hypertension. Also, issues concerning thin skin. You don't see it right away, but over the course of years, you can spot those people who have kind of a long-term steroid effect related to the thinning of their skin. Do you ever see patients get manic on steroids? You know, I think that is incredibly overblown. We hear this from our psychiatric colleagues, but in general, at doses of less than 30 milligrams a day, it is pretty rare to see mania. You will see sometimes some mild change in some irritability. They may be a little more manic or a little more depressed, but to find someone really psychiatrically impaired is very unusual. Some of my patients really enjoy being on the steroids. I mean, they really have a sense of euphoria, not a high, just feeling really good. They get hypomanic. Yeah. So how do you decide when to take a patient off a steroid? Let's pick a condition that you treat. A perfect condition would be something like polymyaldramatica, PMR, which is uh, a condition that occurs in people over the age of 60, typically Caucasians, comes on quickly, and the treatment of choice is corticosteroid. You don't really need a lot. I mean, you can you can actually diagnose it by them responding just in a few days to a Absolutely. low dose. Absolutely. In fact, the clinical response is one of the hallmarks of the disease. And usually they respond with 15 to 20 milligrams of prednisone a day. If they come back in a week and say that they're not dramatically better, you're probably not dealing with that diagnosis. But at that point, I find that physicians are too nice. When I say that, often people don't want to expose their patients to steroids and are a little too quick at getting the steroids down. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, the individual has flares of their PMR. And I think in the long run, they are not as well controlled and get exposed to more steroids longer. So the key to me is to get the disease under control at 15 to 20 milligrams of prednisone and then begin lowering by about 10% every several weeks. And once you get down to 10 milligrams a day, I'm lowering by one milligram increments. And usually you can get someone to be maintained at around 5 to 8 milligrams of prednisone a day. And at that point, they often sit there for a number of months or a year or so. And we're constantly trying to lower, but you'll find that they flare. And over the course of several years, all of a sudden, you're able to kind of break through and continue to lower the steroids and get them off. But it has to be done very slowly. And we use 1 milligram increments below 10 milligrams a day. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment focused on sports medicine on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and my guest is Dr. Paul Howard, current governor of the ACP Arizona chapter and voted top doc in rheumatology in Phoenix Magazine. And we're talking about the truth about steroids. Dr. Howard, you mentioned that we are kind of gun-shy of treating our patients with an appropriate dose and long enough. Let's take a different condition such as poison ivy. Uh, I will see a lot of that, and I'll put patients on prednisone, and I'm afraid to put them on a a high enough dose and keep them on it long enough, but a lot of them will break through after five days. So what's a safe amount of time to keep someone on steroids just for a brief episode like that? A brief episode for a self-limited condition. Usually, you can treat someone for two to three weeks, and you don't have to worry about the adrenal suppression. You don't have to taper them. If you keep your treatment less than four weeks, you don't have to worry about a tapering course at the end of it. So just stop. You can stop it abruptly. As it goes against everything we were trained to do 20 years ago. Right. But if you look at some of the published data, it's not until four to six weeks do you start seeing significant adrenal suppression. So if you have a short course of steroids for somewhere between one and two weeks, you are way within 
to the limits. Hmm. I can go from 60 to zero. You could. But then on the other side, if someone's been on steroids for more than six weeks, right. even if you've gotten them off the steroids, they will still have some adrenal suppression. And if they're going for surgery, you probably should cover them with a stress dose of steroids. What do you see clinically when patients actually do develop the hypothalamic pituitary axis suppression? It, it can be very subtle to the point of some so hypotension. Can, so we can miss it. <laughs> and you can, Exactly. So these are, these are things where someone will just feel more fatigued, mm-hmm. a little bit of hy- hypotension, some electrolyte abnormalities. And unless you're attuned to the fact that they may be adrenally suppressed and, and not have enough steroids, you will miss these subtle findings. And how would you go about diagnosing that? I would probably not check a morning serum cortisol. I probably would place them on a physiologic replacement that would be five to seven and a half milligrams of prednisone a day and see how they responded. Now, in someone who's on steroids and I'm coming down and I want to see if their adrenal glands are starting to come back, that's when I will probably be checking a serum, a first a fasting morning serum cortisol, or I may even be checking a CTH stimulation test. If I'm subtly looking for these changes, what kind of clues with their electrolytes? Just potassium abnormalities? Potassium abnormalities is clearly the most common. When I say not that subtle, really the main issue is that they feel tired. They just, they, and, and a lot of these patients that I deal with who have rheumatic disease, that's part of their disease also. So it's sometimes very difficult to separate out the two. Do you routinely check testosterone levels in your patients? I don't. And I will tell you, we're checking it more, particularly our male patients who have osteoporosis. We are checking testosterone more, but it's been something that a lot of people have not been looking at. If you're on long courses of steroids, does that affect testosterone levels or your adrenal creation? It doesn't really affect it to a degree where you're going to see a low serum testosterone greater than what's in the population. Dr. Howard, besides getting physiologically dependent on steroids, are there patients that you've seen that are psychologically afraid to go off? They are, but usually they have been on Google and they've looked at the side effects (laughs) and that cures them. (laughs) Thank God for the internet. Yes. And then can you tell me a little bit about the use of corticosteroids uh, as a bridge while you're waiting for other medicines to kick in? This is a uh, form of using corticosteroids that is temporary. It has a defined limit and usually a defined dose. And we use it literally, as you mentioned, as a bridge between starting a disease-modifying agent for a particular rheumatic disease while waiting for it to kick in or start. And usually that wait period may be anywhere from three to eight weeks. So a short course of steroids will have someone feel better, also reduce their overall inflammatory burden while waiting for, let's say, a disease-modifying agent like methotrexate or one of the uh, biologic disease modifiers to start working. As a result of the, the DMAs, are you using less steroids? Clearly, we're using a lot less steroids. I would say, and we're using a lot less non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. In fact, I would say that most of our well-controlled patients with rheumatoid arthritis are no longer taking an anti-inflammatory, and that was unheard of. 20 years ago, and many are um, off their low-dose corticosteroids, where they used to be maintained between 5 and 7.5 milligrams, and now are completely off their steroids. And I guess the last question is, we've replaced steroids or added to steroids with these disease-modifying agents, but don't they have as many terrible side effects as steroids might have long-term? Or you don't have to use them that long-term? No. Most of the rheumatic diseases, many, including rheumatoid arthritis, is a lifelong disease. Uh, We haven't gotten to the point of stopping the disease and taking people off of all treatment. I think the difference, though, that 
Corticosteroids is a guaranteed long-term side effect. Take it long enough, even at low doses, and there's complications, particularly osteoporosis, um, cataracts, thin skin. The issue with the biologics, they also stop the disease in many patients, and that's not what corticosteroids do. They slow it down, but they have not been shown to stop radiographic progression, and that has been shown with the biologic agents. Dr. Paul Howard, thank you very much for coming on the show today and and teaching us a little bit about steroids. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment focused on sports medicine on ReachMD XM157. To comment or listen to our full library of on-demand podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD you can listen to at home or at work. You can also reach us by phone now with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Focus on Sports Medicine, part of this month's special series on ReachMD-XM-157, the channel for medical professionals.